Hey, Bobby. Hey. We have to thank some uh, new Patreon patrons. Cool. Like Ted Lee mm -hmm. and Paige Brand. Yeah. Why am I thanking them? For being in the original cast. Right, for being patrons of the original cast, right? Yeah. Do you know what that means? No. It means they have pledged a monthly donation to the podcast because they like it so much. Wow. Yeah. And so... You know that, like, if you're a $2 a month pledge, mm -hmm. you get access to the original cast at the movies, which is a bonus podcast I produce once a month with two guests where we talk about a movie musical, and this year in 2021, we're doing all Stephen Sondheim things. Whoa. Yeah. And then if you're a $3 patron, uh -huh. you get that, uh -huh. and you get a special, some some episodes come out as videos, and you can watch them in addition to listening to them. Uh -huh. And like in today's episode with Dom O'Hanlon, he shows off his Follies tattoo, but you can only see it if you're a $3 patron. And then if you're a $5 patron, you know what happens? You get the episodes a day early. <laughs> plus all that other stuff. Uh, okay. How big of a patron would you be? $1,000. you would be $1,000 a month? Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't have any patrons like that. That'd be pretty cool. Okay. I was just kidding. How about 10? You'd be 10. 10's cool. Yeah. 10's even more than 5. Yes. That's great. And five is the highest number. If you're not a patron, what should people do? Should they go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and become a patron of the original cast to gain access to the original cast of the movies and all the other perks? Uh, sure. Great. Now give them your signature sign-off. Uh, no email? No, don't give out your email. <laughs> That's all right. We'll shut this down. All right. Say bye. Bye. <laughs> It's going to be visually because I also hide. Oh, you got your Follies tattoo. We didn't even talk. Well, this will be good for the Patreon because there's the oh, video for this them. Yeah, extra yeah. Content. Yes. Well, I'll work out how to show. So, yes, I've just revealed my Follies tattoo, is what I have done. Right. Let's see. Can we see it? Does it work? Let's see if we can get it in for the yeah. video. This will be bonus. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. That's good. Yeah. Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today you know from Instagram as the man in the chair. It's Dom O'Hanlon, everybody. Hello. How you doing, Dom? I'm good. What a pleasure to be here, long time listener. Oh, good. I'm happy to have you. I'm, I've been—I would say long time viewer of Man of the Chair, but you haven't been doing it for that long, so I guess it's not. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a kind of lockdown. Well, it came about because I've had to move house recently, so I moved house twice for a very for in a very very short period of time, and I kind of semi resented. It was a point where you move house and you have to think, what are you taking with you, and then. Mm -hmm. And my husband was like, he's always kind of put up with me collecting 800 plus CDs because sure. they're kind of neatly stored. But then when it gets to a point, you have to move them across like water. And, um, <laughs> and because I had to do it twice, and then I was like, oh, I guess it would be fun to like go through these and then trying to think of like a way that was, that could kind of, engage with people in a very short <laughs> that was kind of very low low maintenance for me i thought well i'll do like one minute one minute videos on instagram well that's what i really like about it is it is just one minute so you don't fall into the igtv 
strange. Oh, it's like these just come up in the feed and they're one minute long and it's everything you need to know kind of quickly if you're interested in the show or if it's a show you haven't heard of and then you can dig in on your own. So it's a nice, uh, it's a good show. I hope everyone on this feed is listening, is watching. Um, but we're, and we will talk a little bit more, I'm sure, about all the, the CDs in your collection or at least a, I shouldn't say all, you have a lot, a, a, a plurality of them, but you're here specifically to talk about... One of my favorite musicals, which is a bold claim, but it is Stephen Sondheim's Follies. Waiting around for the girls upstairs After the curtain came down Money in my pocket to spend Honey, could you maybe get a friend for my friend? Hearing the sound of the girls above Dressing to go on the town Clicking heels on steel and cement Picking up the giggles floating down through the vent Goddamnedest hours that I ever spent Were waiting for the girls upstairs Ollie's, yes, never has come up so far in this show as a main topic. It is a little shocking, I gotta say, that it hasn't come up. Uh, but how did Follies come into your life? Good question. You know, I, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I was trying to think, I was trying to remember today, and I think I had, I had various on-ramps with it, and I think, actually, the first time I came across it was was mainly like the individual songs. So obviously losing my mind being the biggest one. I think and I tried to pin that down to Hey Mr. Producer mm. and the 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 um videotape that um they released of, of the Cameron Macintosh Hey Mr. Producer, which was like an incredible do you know it? You yes, speak? absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I don't know how much you like how much it carried into the US because it was a big thing with like theater fans in the uk growing I, up yeah, i don't know when it was it was definitely available on video i saw i've seen most of it on from youtube right um, right and and the fame the, but the famous bit of sondheim and andrew lloyd weber at the piano yes is, isn't that from that special that's right okay yeah yeah, yeah. so gotcha. that was recorded that was recorded as like a tribute to cameron so i think i'm gonna say this is for cameron mcintosh's 40th birthday wow. and as as he's extremely modest and kind of unassuming, he he, he produced his own birthday party. Right. Had, yeah. Like the best people in musical theater in one <laughs> room. Um, so anyway, they did this, they did a Sondheim segment in that. And growing up, I was like a huge musical theater fan, but very much into like British musicals, Android Webber, um, Miss Saigon, all of the kind of what you grew up in the UK knowing. And so Sondheim was kind of a little bit more elusive to me at a younger age. And this is around when I was like 11 or 12. And then in Hey Mr. Producer, Michael Ball sings Losing My Mind. Mm. Um, so they kind of do a thing where he sings Losing My Mind and Bernadette Peter sings Being Alive. So they do like mm. a gender switch. Mm-hmm. So I think that was probably like my first introduction to that song and then i was really obsessed with the film camp which like well, uh, okay okay cinema to see yeah kid and then follies features in that through a couple of songs um so getting to know that was like my the door opening to sondheim but then actually in terms of the cd i remember i remember buying 
I used to save all my pocket money up each week and try and then go into like what then was Virgin Megastores, like it's long gone now here. Um, and this is where I grew up in the northeast of, of the UK. So kind of very, very far away from London, mm-hmm. far away from theatre and not very, not very well connected at all to the kind of actual theatre industry. But the Virgin Megastore had like the tiniest like rack of show show music i guess or compilations and it was all like lumped together with like show music and everything else mm-hmm. um and i was walking through and i just remember like the logo for follies obviously is so striking um but actually it was the original london cast album so i think that was nine mm. the 1987 one and mm-hmm. just seeing like the artwork for that and knowing nothing about it other than uh, other than losing my mind and thinking all right I'll save my, I've saved my pocket money, I'll, buy, I'll take a punt on this. And that was like, that was my first introduction to it as a full piece, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, but you chose for us to sort of dig in today, the, mm. the, the 1998 Paper Mill Playhouse recording. Why did you choose that one? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess it's one of those things, Follies fans will like argue on message boards till the end of time over which recording is best. And I think the thing I really like about it is there's no best recording because they're all very they're all quite different. They all have different things about them, whether it's like the original Broadway um, cast and the restored version of that and the London version. But the paper mill one to me, I think it's the most complete in the fact that they someone was throwing money around in those days and thought we've got two yes. <laughs> we've got two discs, we're gonna fill them up and not only we're gonna record the whole show we'll also add in all the bonus songs and everything that was cut in Boston. So to me, it's like a really, really complete album. Um, and I, I, my copy of it here, which is like, it's still got like the price tag on, it was two pounds. Oh, two pounds, jeez. Um, and this was from a library sale. Um, so I picked it up there. And then, yeah, and it's kind of the one, I think it's probably the one that I just like listen to most. Um, and, and the performances are brilliant, but just as a kind of completist in listening. I love I loved the 2011 one, the, the most recent Broadway, because I love PS Classics. I think they do such a beautiful mm-hmm. job in recording. Oh, yeah. um, and you get the dialogue in that and you get like a really a good, like complete sense of the show. But yeah, there's just something really special about the paper mill one. And I wish I could have seen the production. It was, it was supposed to transfer to Broadway and everything I've read that it was fantastic, but as no production of Follies has ever made anyone a dime. No, very true. No one's ever, I, I don't know how the National Theatre one did over there. Did you see that? Yeah, I, okay. yeah, I saw it about five or six times, actually. Oh, um, gosh. It, it did really well for the National, but it was heavily, obviously the National's like public funded and mm-hmm. it sold out. Like, I think in terms of, in terms of they brought it back um and then they put it on nt live and they filmed it so it couldn't have done better for them financially but still because it had like a huge orchestra a huge staff a huge artistic team i just think it's one of those shows that is like destined to never make more like you can't financially make it work well because it's huge i mean it is like it is of all of sondheim's shows it's the biggest i think full stop I think it has the biggest yeah. cast. It needs the biggest orchestra. Like you really couldn't strip this show down. Um, you say that, Patrick. You say that, 
but people have tried. People have tried. I'm not saying people aren't going to try. <laughs> uh, we have so in, in London. We have we have like pub theaters, which are really big, like off West End, like off off West End, I guess. Sure. Um, and I've seen it twice in a pub theater in two different pub theaters. So people try it and they double cast and they do it with a piano and a bassoon, and it's just like it just. It's and it's the fantastics yeah basically uh, <laughs> it, it is like i mean i am usually a fan of stripping down big broadway shows and seeing what's at the heart of it and there is some interesting there is some very interesting theater that comes from that i think that to re-examine something and see like what if we took all the glitz and the glamour away from it but this is literally about the glitz <laughs> and the glamour that's the whole point and Aside from the fact that like, and again, I'm a big fan of double casting. I'm a big fan of all that sort of thing, but not in this show is already doubled. Every single performer has a double on this stage already. They have to, otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't work. It, it needs to be, because part of the joy of it is the excess. It's the, yes. it's the extreme. It's one of the reasons the original Broadway cast recording is so disappointing because it is just, it's a highlights album, first of all, and famously, you know, a, a bad, like one of the, the biggest crimes against musical theater ever is the original <laughs> Broadway cast recording of Follies. Um, but it, it is like, it just strips it all down that there's not enough takes and it just sort of got done in one day. And it's, it's just not, it's not that, you know, it's just nothing really to speak about, but the, and I think every production and every recording since then has been chasing that, has been trying to, to be the original, you know, to try to recapture the original Follies. Because everybody I know who saw the original Broadway production of Follies says it's the best thing they ever saw. It, right. it just, it, it, I mean, you know, this the the absolute greatest. And all the people I know who were living in New York in the 70s who didn't <laughs> see it consider it to be the biggest regret of, of their time in New York that they didn't see the original Follies. So yeah. it has kind of mythic status. And I do want to dig in a little bit on the, the paper mill and the London cast recording, because I think that is very interesting. But before we do, Dom, do you think you can give an overview as to what i won't say summarize the plot because there really isn't right. one per se but do you think you could give an overview to the conceit of, yes. of follies i will do my best i think it's just i read it described recently as like a memory piece and it's kind of mm -hmm. it's, it's quite i quite like that as a description i mean it's semi-plotless is it a concept musical is it not it's kind of not a concept musical in the way that um that gets generally used as a term. It, the conceit, I think, is a really good way of saying it. The conceit, it's set on the stage of the Weissman Theatre that's about to be torn down and turned into a car park. So it is basically a reunion um, for the, the, the Follies girls who worked in the theatre throughout, um, throughout the Weissman Follies. So you get like a complete age range of characters. So it... It's, it's an ensemble piece in as much as everyone kind of gets their moment um, and their moments reflect on the central full couple. So you have um, two couples, um, Ben and Phyllis and Buddy and Sally, and they kind of come together. And it's often described as, I, 
I like enjoy someone describing it as who's afraid of Virginia Woolf the musical. Ooh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, like I always enjoyed that as an analogy. You get this very kind of um, intense, dramatic um, Balsam who have, have kind of, they were best friends in the Follies. They had, the, the two girls were, um, were, Follies, were Follies girls and the two men were stage door Johnnies. And they basically, the piece suggests that they both ended up not necessarily with the right person so the show kind of is all tinged with memory and regret so you get the characters looking back as one would do at a reunion kind of fueled by this sense of let's all remember the time we were here and they're literally on the stage of a theater that is being torn down so you get this like the visual of of, of everything um for an audience is is, is things kind of crumbling um, from the artwork through to the production design. Um, and yeah, it's kind of a chance to re-examine the past. The central folk couple, the central couples think about their um, think about their past um, in relation to not just the job of, of performing in the foys, but also their relationships with each other. So you get these brilliant musical moments from um, that are kind of pastiches, I guess, of different music throughout time. So um, the, the different songs and periods of musical landscape that Sondheim uses, and then these kind of more diegetic songs and um, songs that, um, like love songs that are more of the central story between each other. So it's kind of a mix, but it's, yeah, a mood piece. Um, about regret and the things that we, the choices we make. And um, the actually, in terms of, as far as the plot goes, it constantly develops and there's very, there's different versions, I guess, of the plot in terms of how dark it goes. So the original production, and I think is essentially what is licensed now, mm-hmm. and certainly the National Theatre's recent production, right. ends very dark. Um, they go into this Follies landscape and they all kind of have a Follies moment that's um, that's within their head and to the audience within the, the um, conceit of, of their own folly. And um, you tra- get transported to Loveland where um, the folk, the, um, the central four characters each kind of get their moment and it ends very darkly although famously Cameron McIntosh kind of changed the ending for the London the, the 87 version in London and tried to make it more positive and a happier a happier way so it's never been done again since then so I, I assume the general consensus is that didn't that didn't, didn't work or work. Yeah. didn't quite work um, although it ran quite, it did quite a good run in London. It was quite successful. So maybe in his kind of genius, he did think it was too bleak just as an ending, this kind of someone contemplating suicide and, and the the um, the full of them basically just like having had their lives torn apart and then like, it's on the just derelict stage. But then, yeah. So the, but then again, I kind of, you can't, he didn't change it enough to be like you weren't going out stamping your foot like right. whistling, whistling. It was still like bleak, like it was yeah. still depressing. Well, it's a pretty. You can't make it not depressing. <laughs> you can make it varying degrees of depressing. You know, you have you. Yes. There's a there's a there's a wide spectrum you could paint in there. 
Um, because I don't think the ending actually, and this is mainly influenced by the National Theater production, which I saw on NT Live, is actually that bad considering where the characters are sort of right before the Loveland section when they're at their absolute worst. And Phyllis sort of taking Ben by the arm and Sally going off um, uh, with, I forgot her husband's name. Um, who's the other uh, buddy? Buddy, there we go. Um, is like it's not, it's not great. Don't get me wrong, but it isn't. You know, they're all all they have is each other, kind of at the end. It, it's a it's a very right, much right. like we made our bed, now we have to sleep in it kind of ending, and <laughs> that isn't great. But it's also it's not like the the four the two couples are mixed up. It's not like night music where yes they're just with the wrong people right. they are they're not they are with the wrong people but there isn't the only person who has a right person out there it seems to me is buddy in uh margie his his yeah. other wife slash mistress slash girlfriend whatever you want to call her who does actually love him and wants to be with him and all he wants is sally who doesn't want to be with him but Sally wants to be with Ben. Ben doesn't want to be with Sally. Ben doesn't want to be with Phyllis. Ben doesn't want to be with anybody. And Phyllis doesn't want to be with Ben and certainly doesn't want to be with Buddy. So it, it isn't like they can just swap. They kind of have to go off <laughs> back to where they came from Yeah. With, with the knowledge that they kind of, the thing I really like about it is they all put themselves in that position. There is no like, moment we see in the flashbacks which are amorphous achronological and confounding sometimes um when these characters come on stage from the past and start talking to each other and it's like i don't know where we are i don't know where in the relationship i mean i love it but it's all but because that's the way memory works i don't know because i'm not ben and sally like i don't know when this conversation took place but ben is miserable because of what ben did and Phyllis is miserable because of what Phyllis did. Like they're not, it's not like Ben ruined Sally's life. Sally, he didn't help, but she made a lot of decisions too that weren't great for her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not the right decision to, you know, they're all, they're all architects of their own misery. And which means that at the end, they either acknowledge that or they don't. And you can kind of decide, I think as a director and an actor, how much you want the characters to take ownership of that. Trying to put any kind of positive spin on the ending of this show would just make it seem so <laughs> false to me. <laughs> I think, uh, you, yeah, you're completely right. I like the idea of like, it's never quite clear. It's not a, it's not a difficult show to follow, but I, I remember like dip, having seen like, so many different versions of it. Directors do have to be quite careful about when they interplay the young couples. Because oh, you're yeah. right, it's kind of like what someone is remembering. And I guess if you were to really like pull it apart and like dramaturgically look for the logic, it potentially doesn't make sense. Like this, the, the individual narratives aren't all quite clear, but it kind of works because you get the sense their memories are all triggered by something, by like, by a line or the um even physical their physical spaces they're in that space again and then they remember a conversation so you kind of get this overall effect that there's a lot of misremembering going on so as an audience you're kind of forgiven the fact that 
you almost don't have to like track every narrative like in the way that night music you track like who was who was attracted to who who was with who and then she shuffles the deck and they all kind of get get with the right person at the end sure and it does have the 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 great kind of like the subjectiveness of the memories is really really good that i never really yeah. get the sense that like i'm not seeing the objective truth i'm seeing what ben remembers about the time that like buddy loaned him some money i'm seeing what ben, like sally remembers about the way she broke up with ben which seems you know and that kind of like and and what phyllis remembers about when ben proposed like i i really feel this it isn't a hundred percent honest it, it's what they remember about what happened and it's painted that way because their younger selves are so you know like goody two shoes kind of yes. you know and the whole um culminating in you know you're gonna love tomorrow and love will see us through in this like super saccharine over the top uh number which is just such a great 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 performance i may burn the toast oh well i may make a rotten post to tell but no matter what goes wrong i'll see, see you soon as something better comes along i may vex your folks okay i may interrupt your joke you may but, but if, if i come on too strong I may play cards all night and come home at three. Just leave a light on the porch for me. I'll notice perfect. I may trump your ace. Please do. I may clutter up the place. Me too. But the minute we embrace to love's old sweet song, dear, that'll cease through something better comes along. So is this, you say this is your favorite, did you say it was your favorite musical or favorite Sondheim music? Where did you couch it? Um, you know what? Can anyone ever say what their favorite musical is? Oh, I true. Don't yeah. you, I don't know whether you can. It's definitely like, I think with Sondheim shows, you kind of relate, or I do anyway, you relate to them differently at different points of your life. And I think- Very true. Yeah, yeah. They mean something different. I remember just after, when I saw- I, I probably know company the most from having done it and been in it and directed it at various different stages. And then, but I remember seeing it again just after I got married and like, and then as soon as Sorry Grateful started, and I was like, oh my God, that song means like I'm married now. And that mm -hmm. song means something completely different to me than it did like a year ago. And just being like deeply moved by different things in, and seeing merrily as like um just as i graduated from university and seeing that like that the many chocolate factories version and you obviously connect with that in a completely different way because it hits you at a different point i have to say i'm not quite in the like regret my whole life choices phase of life as <laughs> but i imagine that when you get to that like you will get you will you there will be people who read follies as like a totally different way that they did 10 years ago i can i anticipate seeing it at a later point in life and being and being completely kind of moved or i'll connect to the material in a totally different way and, and to me i think that's what i just don't think any other composer really manages to do that with their work that it can affect you at different points of your life and 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 that's and that's nuts not revolutionary so that's a kind of common thing people say about sondheim's work i think that 
that um, it continues. You don't just get one read of it, you get multiple reads over and over again. And it's as much about you and where you are as like the production and, um, and what's happening in your life at that point. And I think this like really hits differently to different people. It does. I will. I was. I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I noticed re-listening to to this to talk to you is how different I relate to this show than I did the first time I heard it, and then the first time I heard Paper Mill recording when I was in college, and then you know listening to it here and there and now and that like it really every time I listen to it the characters get I forgive them a little bit more. You know, right. like I don't, I feel like when I was younger, I thought they were all idiots. And now yes. I kind of go, well, you know, we all make choices. It's sort of like my, and I see how, because I think when you're young, it, it's impossible to comprehend that, you know, you turn around and it's been how many years since we were here? And it's been like, you just can't conceive of that. When you're young and time moves interminably slowly, I think there's this sense of like, like, no, no, like every day is a, is a, is a journey for me. And now it's like, you know, we'll say routinely my wife and I, you know, say it's like, well, you know, cause it's Tuesday. No, wait, it's Thursday. Oh no, it's right. Thursday. Oh God. Like, you know, then you just sort of, you just have no idea. And that's obviously been made worse in the last, in the last year, but this, yeah, this show is getting more and more true to me as <laughs> I, I, not in the sense of like, this is my life, just in the sense right, of like, right. I get these people, I get them all. I understand their good, the bad, the, the pain and all of it that they kind of go through just all feels much more genuine to me. And it's probably also largely why um, the show was not a financial success in New York because as is often the story of like, this was a show of people the same age as the characters on the stage being told their lives was a sham and it's not what you want to hear at, you know, at $25 a seat or whatever the cost was back in 1971 Um, for, I mean, two hours with no intermission. Like this show really didn't let, let anyone off the hook in, in 1971. And uh, is also full of a cast. One of the things I like about this cast is it does, it's the most, I think it reproduces the original cast very well in the sense that it's full of actors who were of a certain age when the Follies were a thing. Like, I mean, the, the original right. is obviously famously full of actual Follies people and early, you know, cinema stars and, and things like that. But for this, you get, I mean, you have Donna McKechnie and uh, um, Dee Hoity and Tony Roberts, you know, these great like sort of older film stars. But then you also have singing what is probably the best version of I'm Still Here since the original with Ann Miller. Just, I mean, it's heartbreaking listening to her and inspiring though to me in the same in sort of the same breath. Life save one day, next day it goes into hot. And I'm here. Top billing Monday, Tuesday, you're touring and stop. But I'm here. First you're another slow-eyed van. Then someone's mother, then you can. Then you career from career. To career, I'm all 
almost through my memoirs And I'm here I've gotten through Hey lady, aren't you who's this? Wow, what a looker you were Or better yet, oh sorry I thought you were who's this? Whatever happened to her? Yeah, and I think that's why this show works because I know any show it's about casting and casting, but there's this brilliant book by the professor uh, Marvin Carlson about um, it's called The Haunted Stage, and he, it's it's about how going to the theatre is a haunted experience because you take with it your own baggage, but you are watching even if you're watching Hamlet, you're not just watching Hamlet, you're watching someone perform Hamlet, and what are they bringing to it? What baggage are they bringing to it? But I think no, I can't think of another musical where this is, is, is where casting is kind of as important because you're absolutely right. Not only does it have to be like completely age appropriate casting because the age spans so many different, so many different ages of character, but yeah, you see, you, you can't watch Ann Miller like perform that and not, not see Ann Miller perform as, as yeah. As, if she's incredible in the role of Carlotta, you still it's written so that you see that performer and you see it through their eyes, mm-hmm. and, and that it works on this like uh, duplicate level, um, where where you read these characters as um, uh, as the performers, and it's and it's intentional. It's not by saying oh they they're not lost enough in their character. I can see who they are, but like it is completely. I mean, even even thinking of like the concert cast where you have like um, Adolph Green and um, mm-hmm. Betty Compton, them, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mm-hmm. see, and like you see them perform that, and you know it's that like part of the appeal of that as you see it's Compton and Green performing that number, absolutely. And, it's, and that's not to say that they don't do a good job of selling themselves in that character. I just think it's so kind of. Um, important that it works and that it has these songs have that duality well which is why i think the the 2011 recording production is not it doesn't quite go for me it doesn't work as well because the cast while excellent don't don't get me wrong you know you you could do a lot worse than bernadette peters jan maxwell Danny burstein and ron Raines. i'm not and elaine page is carlotta i'm not saying that but there isn't that sense I, I bernadette peters to me doesn't read as somebody who is out of control or worn down by life she doesn't she there's a defiance to her it's it's like patty lapone i don't quite right. I don't, I don't get a Sally vibe from, from Bernadette Peters uh, as I do from Imelda Staunton. I think, say what you will about Imelda Staunton's performance. It, it was, and I've said some, some things. It, it, it is, but I get, you know, she made the choice to perform Sally a certain way. And I get her reading of that character a, a thousand percent. Um, but nobody felt old enough to me in the 2011 production of Follies. It's just weird. Yes. I know they probably technically were, but like Danny Burstein, his buddy, was just like, it was so, it felt so young to me. I don't yeah, know if that, yeah. that's his vibe or, or what it is about him. Unlike, um, unlike this recording, where it is like, it, it's everybody feels. I never want to call it, like, not, it's not washed up or past their prime. They're just, they're not famous anymore. Right. I think, 
yeah Absolutely. you get what and i'm saying yeah completely and it makes total i think that's possibly why i come back to this but because like bernadette peters i love her i'm actually wearing a bernadette peters t-shirt under this oh. so i'm an absolute bernadette stan but again you were aware that you were watching bernadette peters and we've heard her do losing my mind so many times in context out of context that like narrowing down on that moment just just she was almost too kind of beautiful, too too sexy, um, too she just too yeah. radiant for Sally. Whereas listening to Donna McKechnie, she carries all that baggage of like, yes, she wasn't a Follies girl, but she was like a Michael Bennett girl. She was a chorus girl. She she brings that right level of baggage. She kind of had her like huge moment for chorus line, but then then went. I mean, she she was never quite the big star that like I guess Bernadette Peters has continued to be. Um, so you get that kind of a lived experience in Donna McKechnie's version um, that I think really that makes the character work. Yeah, I want it to be full of people who were nominated for Tonys for Best Supporting yes. Performance. I do, like I don't want anyone except for maybe in the role of Carlotta and some of the other. St- people who were star stars right i don't want anybody's you know the big four should all be people who were maybe people i know i mean i know all four of these performers but like you know uh lawrence i can never pronounce his last name uh gutyard he was in the original yes the original cast of of um of night music of night music yeah um you know he's a guy i know because I know shows and I would be excited to see him because I was excited about, you know, the original production of, of excited about the original cast of night music, but like, he's not, you know, he's, he's playing, you know, Andre in phantom, like those are the roles he's doing. So bring him out to the front for follies, bring those actors out. You know, Tony Roberts was a movie star, supporting actor star, not a lead star, but a supporting actor star in the seventies. That's who I want in those roles i don't want current broadway stars and i understand that like then i've just made it almost impossible to finance a production <laughs> of follies and i get it but I, I i don't think there's any there's any other way to do this show it's i mean it's probably another reason it's it's like a confounding show to to produce i would rather see bernadette peters play um uh phyllis than see her play sally she feels yeah. a lot more like Phyllis to me. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know if that's, you know, it, it's obviously Sally is the, the star female role, but like, that's who I would put Bernadette Peters in. Nothing and nothing against any of the other Phyllises. It's just like, that's, that's where I think she's more suited to that kind of performance. The, the best Sally I've seen um, was when they brought um, Foy's back to the National Theater and it melted into calm. And it was Joanna Riding, and she was I, she was absolutely fantastic. She was she was so beautiful. I mean, she's she's one of she is, I guess, like of the British version of Bernadette Peters. But they don't have because of our musical theatre stars aren't on ever on the level of Audra and Bernadette and Patrick. Right. We just don't have. It's just not a culture where they're kind of they're kind of idolized in the same way. Um, but Joanna Riding to me was like the perfect Sally because you she just brought everything. She brought everything that Amelda did, but also she filled in all the gaps for me where Amelda was kind of, I, I kind of found her lacking in that role. Amelda was, Amelda I really struggled with 
Uh, and I think, again, it was this idea of go like the total, everything you bring. We'd just seen Imelda. She was so overexposed on stage. Like we'd just seen her do... Um, Gypsy, she, yeah. We, she, just, she went straight from Gypsy into doing Martha in Virginia Woolf and then had just done Rabbit Hole. And she'd done all of these roles, like literally bang, 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 bang. And it was kind of like a cumulative experience. By the time like it got to Follies, I was like, I felt like you were watching her Martha and her Mama Rose and everyone in this one performance. And she's phenomenal. She's brilliant. But it, I just was like, oh, Imelda again. And this is what, the, and she, Imelda is doing Imelda. Sure. And she, but she is also do, like, it did feel like, it felt like Mama Rose playing Sally. It it felt like she 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 leaned into the unhingedness yes. of yeah. of Sally, which is certainly a component of her personality. And her song is called "Losing My Mind." I'm not like you know I'm not I'm not blind to that, but it it's she's more fragile than that. It's more she's much more. Um, oh man, if I could come up with a character name, this would be a brilliant analogy. Uh, who's the who's the sister in Glass Menagerie? Who's the um... oh Laura? Laura. Um, She's Laura. much more Laura in right. Glass Menagerie than she is the mother in Glass Menagerie, for example. Yeah, of course, or, yeah. you know, like like that's she she's she has created this sort of world around her, and the minute it starts to get picked at, which is mainly what Buddy does, that's why he she, he drives her crazy. It, it it all falls apart, and that's why when Ben. Like, I don't think Ben, I mean, Ben's not a good guy. I don't want to say he's a good guy, but I don't think he realizes quite like when he puts on his show in too many mornings with, with Sally, I don't think he realizes how much he's playing with live ammunition. Like he's really, he's opening a door yes. that is, that is, you just can't close that again. Was it ever real? Did I? And then it gets so weird. And then it gets, I mean, the scene in, that I find so heartbreaking for Ben is when he's trying to like sneak off in a corner with Carlotta and she like turns right. him down <laughs> because apparently they used to mess around. And she's yeah. just like, she's just so happy, like in her life and she's fine. She's, she knows who she is. She's fully fulfilled. She's got a young guy with her. And even if she didn't, she's like, whatever, I'm good. Like, don't, don't stop touching me. Go away. Be, yeah. Go be, don't, don't bring your miserableness <laughs> to me like you'll get it all over me i think with with donna she there's like a softness to her where imelda is imelda i just read as being harsh and hard whereas like donna brings that soft brings like a completely soft touch to her where she is fragile but equally you know she could break it but again i listening back to this this week i think this is such a a lot of people don't just register donna mckechnie as a singer and i think this is some incredible soprano work. That oh, she's yeah. Doing in this. And we, we're just kind of conditioned to remember music in the mirror and, and 
above anything else, I guess. But I was just kind of like, I sat back and was like, oh, yeah, she is, she is good. Like, <laughs> she nails this. So which, okay, let's, let's, let's talk about this. I, I definitely wanted to talk to you about this. So we get into the show, we meet all the characters, we go into the follies and each of our four main characters has their folly. And we have Buddy singing the God, Why Don't You Love Me blues. You have Sally singing Losing My Mind and Ben sings Live, Laugh and Love. Those have remained constant in the right. 50 years this show has existed. They have, they have been, they... And, and the young versions sing the song I mentioned before. Uh, one of the things Cameron McIntosh tried to do to make the ending a little happier is move theirs to the end, which yeah. really doesn't make any sense. But I mean, whatever. You, you try things in life. Um, but Phyllis. <laughs> Phyllis. She doesn't are, know whether she's coming or going. She has three different songs that were written and are sort of taken in and out and performed at various productions. On the Broadway production, it was the, the story of Lucy and Jesse. Here's a little story that should make you cry about two unhappy dames. Let us call them Lucy X and Jesse Y, which are not their real names. Now Lucy has the purity along with the unsurety that comes with being only 21. Jesse has maturity and plenty of security. Whatever you can do with them, she's done. In the London version, it was Abbott underneath. She was smart, tart, dry as a martini. Ah, but underneath, she was all a heart, something by Puccini. Ah, but underneath, in the depths of her interior were fears. She was inferior and something even but no one dared to query a superior exterior. There's also Uptown Downtown. Uptown, she's stepping out with a swell. Downtown. She's holding hands on the L Hyphenated Harriet The new foe from New Rochelle I should also say These songs are all Variations on each other They use right. basically the same melodic structure They use the same Follies style They're all aping the same bit Of like a dance number Um of a sort of back and forth dance number between two people so obviously in this case it's one person um and if you've never heard diana rigg sing ah but underneath you are your life is less than so go find that she was grand bland brave a brisk or brittle anything required both concerned and strictly non-committal and a little tired she was deftly deferential, or so they wrote on her wreath. No one ever glimpsed her potential, but when stripped, 
down to the essential. Mind you, this is confidential. Way down underneath. She was. So I know which one I prefer. I don't know why they can't quite get this right. Which one is the right song for Phyllis? But of the three, uh, which one do you uh, which one do you enjoy? It's interesting because again with all the cult songs and follies like they all have will probably go on to like i'm still here and how that changed but like, sure. there is a real question of like these three songs are essentially serving the same function um i have a complete sympathy for an actor having to learn three of these songs and imagine having those three versions in your head I know. and just like if, if you were ever in it you'd think how i teach me the one i'm going to do and i never want to listen to the other two because you must be like on stage one night and be, and your mind is like, which one of these three fucking songs? <laughs> like they're that similar, but that different too. Yep. So I, I can't think of another example of a show like it where you have like not, there's obviously examples of like the alternative version, but to have three songs. I was looking at this for this and apparently the reason that they, that for this recording, they go with, um, they, they go with Alba underneath is because the story, the story of Lucy and Jesse is always done for the dance of Phyllis. So if you're a right. dance of Phyllis, you get to do that. I mean, they're the same beat. They're the same kind of rhythm. I don't understand why, like, you couldn't do a dance to Arbor underneath. I, I don't know how, like... Yeah, I don't know how it works. Widely but, different yeah. it would have to be. <laughs> I went through a stage of absolutely hating Uptown Downtown, and it was in a review that I was, like, did years ago that was, like, a Sondheim review, and that version was in it and I used to think this song sucks like it makes no sense and then I think it's in Marry Me A Little actually that they use it um and it's really grown on me I definitely think it's the weaker of the three mm -hmm. I think Lucy and Jesse is too obvious as like uh, like what it's it's not oblique enough it Arbor underneath I think is is works for me in terms of what it does in the moment and what it does for Phyllis. Story of Lucy and Jesse is very literal. It's like, she wants this, this wants this. They'll never be happy because they each want what the other one has. This mm -hmm. type of like, it, it's a, it's possibly a bit more obvious. But yeah, I never buy this argument that one's for a dancer Phyllis and one's for a singer Phyllis. Like, it, yeah, I don't, I don't quite buy that. I mean, Story of Lucy and Jesse, I think, has a much longer dance break in it right but you can right. cut that you know down certainly like you can trim yeah. the dance break there's no and this is a very dancey song of it underneath i like so my favorite is probably story of lucy and jesse um because i like i like the the way it lines up with the other four that it is literally i like because phyllis to me is the most interesting character of the four of them mm. phyllis is so aware of her problem and her circumstance and trying her best at this party i think to have a good time and just right. can't because of so many reasons and she but she will articulate them for you <laughs> if you want to um and so I like the way the story of Lucy and Jesse being, you could read it as it's her and young Phyllis, 
or it's her and like Sally, or it's, you know, and it's also there's themes in it that have to do with like Buddy w- wanting what he doesn't have or and right, have, right. what he doesn't want, but you know, it ties in. To, so it links with the other three a lot better, I think is a thematic through line. But I love the lyrics of Abba Underneath because I like the idea of the more you like, cause she always says like, she's this way, but underneath she's this way, but underneath she's that way. You get the sense of it's like peeling an onion. Like she's trying, there, there's so many facades to Phyllis that she, she may not remember. As she says at the end, sometimes when the wrappings fall, there's nothing underneath at all. And there's a sadness and a scariness to that of like her vulnerability being, maybe I'm not a person anymore. <laughs> like if I'm nothing but facades and I'm nothing but attitude. So I think, per- like, I like Story of Lucy and Jesse more, but I think probably Abba Underneath is the more successful song of the two. Right. Um, I, but I totally agree. Like, Uptown, Downtown, I've heard it perform nicely, but, like, it, it really, the whole hyphenated Harriet yeah. thing just really becomes so muddled. I don't know who, because yeah. Lucy and Jesse works because there's two different names, and yeah. you sort of get it, like, which it's, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Uptown Downtown just doesn't do anything for me at the end of the day. It, it gets kind of like, it, it just gets lost. But you also have the problem for Phyllis as a, like dramaturgically, that she sung her best song already. Right, exactly. <laughs> she blew the doors off the place with Could I Leave You? So yeah. it's like, what more do you want her to say? Leave you, leave you. How could I leave you? How could I go it alone? Could I wave the years away with a quick goodbye? How do you wipe tears away when your eyes are dry? Sweetheart, lover, could I recover? Give up the joys I have known Not to fetch your pills again every day at five not to give those dinners for ten elderly men from the UN. How could I survive? Could I leave you and your shelves of the world's best books and the evenings of martyred looks, cryptic sighs, sullen glares from those injured eyes, leave the quips with a sting, jokes with a sneer, Passionless lovemaking once a year Leave the lies ill-concealed And the wounds never healed And the game's not worth winning And wait, I'm just beginning And I think tonally, too, the fact that all three of They obviously knew the song wasn't right So here's three versions They needed an up-tempo They needed to give mm-hmm. to pay the bill. They were paying the chorus boys for something They needed to bring them on and do a dance Like, yeah so cynically it kind of feels like this is we need to push that this song has to exist in this spot we're not quite sure what it is but this is what has to happen in this slot so um i mean this is one of the criticisms that people have of like going into the folly section is that you're absolutely right that she's just done her like what should effectively in most musicals be like an 11 o'clock number yeah in could i leave you and where do you go from there as a performer and even as like yeah and then in the folly section a lot of people are like oh my god and i remember being i remember seeing at the national who did it with no interval 
Um, and you could see people like my husband turned to me and was like, are they going to do a song for every one of these characters? Because mm -hmm. at that point, you're like one hour 50 in, like you're approaching the two hour mark. And that's where you can see people shuffle and they bring on. And, and it's obvious what the conceit is, is everyone's going to have a number. So by that point, you do get this like restlessness of like, come on, just get through this. Right. So it's, I just find it a really oddly placed number because I think you've lost 80% of the audience to some degree by that point. Well, and because it's, it's weird that there's four of them. I mean, there's five songs really, but like, yeah. but you know, um, actually there's six because you start, I mean, you start with Loveland and then when you go into, you know, you're going to love tomorrow, it, but you, it, for some reason, those first two feel more like a prologue than yeah. a proper number in that sense. And then you get, you know, God, why don't you love me? Very upbeat and silly, losing my mind for Sally. And I think the reason, like, if we then went right into the finale, the, the, the dramaturgically, it makes like, you're sort of like, yeah, it's a rule of threes. We set you up and then we do one, two, three, and we're done. But yeah, I get like squirminess because where do you go from, it's also, where do you go from losing my mind? Like losing yeah, my mind is just a, a knockout of a, of a song and is one, I think you also kind of want to, as an audience member, sit with for a minute, you know, it's that kind of song. It, it, it's tender and it's heartbreaking and, and Sally is sort of laid bare and we've been worried about her through the whole show if you're doing it right. So like, we kind of want to give her a minute and you, like you almost want a book scene there, but of course you can't have a book scene. That's it. But it's probably it's probably worth mentioning to if you don't know the show that this section there is no books. It's kind of yeah, it's, it's bang, a rush. Bang, bang, bang. Oh, so you yeah. don't get there is no break. And I think that's really important and that you don't get that natural breathe, breathing moment between them because it's just song, 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 song. And it is like an overwhelming kind of snowball effect that them, which I guess is what it's doing, but a two hour, around the two hour mark when you haven't let people out it is i think it does have like a human i can see why in like 1971 people were like what like what is happening yeah it it's a real it yeah and i think it's also because we we feel we know phyllis the best we're less interested in her 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 subtext you know like yeah. I, I i think that we kind of get it. We, we know who she is. She's been telling us this whole time. And we want to see, we want to see Sally do her thing. We want to see Buddy admit that he's an idiot. And we want to see Ben fall apart. Like you really want to see that. You want to see that character actually crumble. Um, right. But Phyllis is doing fine, you know, almost. <laughs> and, I, and I think Phyllis gets all the laughs, like from she has all oh, yeah. the, she has the lines. best lines like, she has the best lines so she she's the one that you kind of like she's not that there's much comic relief but she's the one that has all the quips and the witticisms so yeah you're right it's like it's a, it's just a different energy with her by that point that you're then like what more am i learning about this woman and what like what to go on further to end this like what more do i need to know and it's it's interesting. We say, I mean, there's three versions of this song, but I think that Sondheim wrote ostensibly like an entire other musicals worth of material for this show. And I mean, almost he he almost it almost really happened because "Marry Me a Little" is mostly 
Farley's right. songs and Saturday Night. Like it's most yeah. like it, there's there's stuff from other shows in there. So they're sprinkled throughout and good cuts from company and stuff. But like majority of the songs in that are from this show where they had, you know, so many cut numbers that they could literally fill you know, an entire like disc, it, it's virtually a disc three. It's, it's all on disc right, two, right. but like, it is basically, you know, you have alternate opening numbers, you have alternate intros to other songs. You have song, the best part of this CD for me is that you hear, you know, that overture to Follies contains two or three songs that aren't in the show aren't even in it. Yes, so exactly. we finally get to hear what the lyrics were to all things bright and beautiful which is in um um marry me a little and um that old piano roll which is probably the most forgettable of the cut songs wouldn't you say yeah. either yeah. that or bring on the girls which is essentially a less interesting version of beautiful girls yeah Exactly. I think that's it. With those songs, you can see how they developed mm-hmm. and where the development is. Although, actually, what I'm realizing for the first time is this doesn't have the song "Country House," right? Which was, so that's kind of missing from the complete completeness. It does have like it has "Who Could Be Blue," "Little White House," but right. "Country House." They added. I'm. I think it's they in added, the London production, isn't it? Yeah, they wrote it for London, and I think it replaced. The road you didn't take in London. I think this was part of the like, let's make it less melancholy, mm-hmm. um, and add an interval, and then we'll put the we'll put um, country house in, and it's quite like a fun, witty song. And Julie Andrews does it in putting it together. So again, it like lives on and on in Sunday repertoire. Um, but yeah, interesting. I just realized for the first time that this complete version doesn't have that. I wonder if they left it out because of that, though, because it was written for yes the london production because this was billed at the time even though i think it was like the third version of the book i'm not sure like which book version this was uh this was sort of advertised as a broadway the broadway production basically and the the cut songs are all you know broadway cut songs so i think it's that except for was abba underneath written for the london production or was that cut and then reinstated I think that might be. I think that was like originally in, in Boston and then cut and then reached. Re- yeah, and then stayed. stuck back in again. Yeah, that would make a lot more sense. I mean, it's obviously, I think, one of those shows that like every musical theater director wants to tackle. Yeah. You know, you want to to take on follies and and see like what can you can you wrestle it to the ground it's almost like can i do it right you know what i mean like right. like companies the one i think that there's most directors be like i i can do company anyone can do company we can do company like it's fine but this is the one where it's like i'm going to do follies and everyone's <laughs> going to love it this time and i think the problem is if you do it right there's going to be something somewhere that's against your instinct either it's unmarketable you know because it doesn't have leads in it or it's you know sort of uh just too downer or it's not really you know there's a lot of things you can do to make people like sort of go what is this exactly that we're that that's we're it and here? they kind of i think they got carried away in london and because i think dominic cook is on board to do the film i think based on the london version, mm-hmm. the national one they are they're like in production for the an actual like film film right it. um 
which I mean, it I might keep just talking be about like, it. That's it. It'll be like <laughs> it'll be like Glenn's sunset and Barbara's gypsy. Like we'll see it. I'll believe it when we see it. Barbara's gypsy. Oh um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. And it's <laughs> like I just can't see it working as a feat, like a feature film. Um, I can if you do it. The problem is, it needs like it, like it needs Bob Fosse to direct it like it needs a director who understands um theater deeply and specifically this kind of theater but is also not afraid to like make it weird because i think film can really um in in an interesting way lend itself to the memory aspect of it where you right, can right. like you can have the camera looking at you know the wall the old theater it's crumbling around you and then you can pan left and it's the new theater like it can be that kind of fluid all of it existing at once but you gotta do that and that's not like easy a and b not what people i, I guess what i mean the i don't know what the modern take on the movie musical is it certainly isn't cats so i guess we'll <laughs> yeah maybe they'll have like cgi ghosts i don't well let's certainly have cgi something like i go yeah. which which again would be fine this is a, a rare example of a show i think that lends itself to that sort of wide cinematic thing but again it's gonna have to be big it's gonna okay, have to yeah. be you know a giant cinemascope musical comedy and technicolor like that's the way it, it's got to have to be put together otherwise it the material isn't going to stand up and yeah. that's not the movies we make right now so i don't know what the answer to the question is so how did your you know you you obviously it sounds like you were a musicals kid a music theater kid and then you you currently work in publishing is that that's, that's I do, yes how did that whole what was your path in the in the entertainment industry um good question um so yeah i just kind of grew up um outside of very far outside of london so would be very into musical theater growing up um kind of obsessively so where my like CD collection started, I guess. Um, and then I moved to London um, for undergrad and I studied English literature at UCL and then kind of got into theater as a student, as we all do like in amateur theater, student theater. It's kind of like being in a rep company, I guess. You were just doing a different musical every week. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I trained then as a director and um, worked in worked in the London Fringe for quite a while and did various mm. various gigs. Um, and yeah, I kind of essentially realised that my um, my psyche is not good at being unemployed, or it's not <laughs> good at being a freelancer. <laughs> Um, yes which are the same it is the same thing so yes yeah. exactly and I, I i enjoyed it but i i kind of had like i had various successes and i did like most recently i did um the uk premiere of uh, michael john mccuser show which was amazing um amazing experience and that transferred into the west end so i had like i did that but i guess like yeah i'm just not cut out for like full-time hustle of the of the theater industry um and I'd always been I'd always like kept up an editorial kind of presence and then I so I went back to train 
at, so I went to Raja to do my master's quite a long time after my undergrad to try and fall, to try and work out like exactly what I wanted to do um, and where, what kind of role, where I'd fit in like my skill set. And I kind of went into Raja thinking I was going to come out as a director, but then ended up going much more down like dramaturgy mm. as a route. Um, and the course was designed so that you had to like, you had to have experience as a writer, director and a dramaturg. And um, I'm not a writer and I don't want to be a writer, but actually what I, what I was good at and what I enjoyed was working with writers and being kind of looking at the, like and the dramaturgically um, working with them in that way. So then, yeah, and then when I graduated from my master's, um, a job came up um, with Metro and Drama, who are a play publisher. Um, and they, yeah, they were looking for someone who didn't come from publishing, but came from a theatre background and could work with writers. I mean, our, our, it's a 130-year-old imprint. So we have writers of Carol Churchill, Edward Bond, through to James Graham, um, Katori Hall, David Mamet. So you have this like huge literary giant of a publishing house um, and they needed they needed someone to take on the job that was that wasn't from a publishing background but could like email Edward Bond or speak to David Mamet and talk to them about their manuscript. So mm. what's the, Jeez. Um, difficult, difficult gig. Yeah, yeah. Um, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. And so and that's where I started in publishing. And then throughout that, because because of my academic interest was is was musical theater, we kind of developed the side. Method and drama publishes books on we do about 250 books a year, and it's it's largely plays and play collections, play anthologies, but we have quite a big theater studies list and a practice and performance list. So we'll do books for actors, performers, directors, dramaturgs. Um and yeah, we've, I've been developing the musical theatre list. So kind of combining my like academic scholarly musical theatre work with with publishing. So I still look after players and still um, still commission plays. But yeah, over the past, especially in the past year when players ain't happening. Um, so it's been a good year to really dive into the musical theatre list and commission books about like scholarly books on musical theatre. Oh. so it's yeah I've kind of carved a weird path and I never thought I never thought I'd work in publishing but then equally it makes complete sense because all I do is read books about theatre <laughs> sure. kind of, uh, aside from like working in a cast working as someone who commissions cast albums it's basically like it would have been it's been and it's very similar to that like play publishing is very 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 similar to um to to recording cast albums like they're very small margins you're pop there's a very small but very intense readership of a play of, of people who buy new plays um but equally it's very important that they get published because exactly as we see if mu new musicals don't get recorded they disappear mm. if if plays don't get published they can disappear and um so yeah it's you kind of have it's weird because you're working in a publishing house that like we publish Harry Potter, for example. So your colleagues are around you publishing Harry Potter, Sarah J. Mass cookbooks. And then you're publishing like a really small print run of like, of one of like a literary giant, like a, a huge playwright. Um, but it's kind of equally really important that it gets published. So how is Man in a Chair going? The point of it, I think, is to show, is to like pull out things that, 
people might not know, especially stuff that's not on Spotify. Like I'm a real advocate, obviously, for buying music. And I have a real issue with streaming music in general, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to like niche products like cast albums where right. stream, like there is no money to be made in streaming music. And the margins for like cast albums are so, 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 so tight. Like it's so difficult to make them that, I guess that's why I always that's why I kept buying CDs because I wanted to feel like I was supporting the artist in a way because I just thought sure. if we just if we stream if we all just stream this they're never going to get made like I think even if you look back at like the history of cast albums they never well in the 50s and 60s they definitely did they definitely made money and yeah. the um, the record labels were investing in the show like hence what happened with Follies like Columbia Records was was an investor and how Prince sold them the rights to basically get them to throw money into the production. Capital records. Yeah. Oh, capital records. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And that's how we ended up with like, with that. So, so it, it's, yeah. And it's, it's, I just find it really important to like, to, yeah, to pay, to pay artists. Um, yeah. It is pretty important. Yes. Very. in whatever means um, and I do worry that I do worry that streaming so I know there's a lot there's some kind of musical theater like um, cast album uh, pr- labels that purposely don't put their stuff on Spotify which I completely see why because I just think that means that yes the discoverability isn't there but it means if you're going to buy it you buy it um, and it, yeah I, I totally get why they do that once I get to the dregs of my CD pile and I'm trying to like find find positive things to say about something. That'd um, be that'd be a fun little series for you to do. It'd be like, I have nothing positive to say about this. Like just just for like a just every now and again, be like, okay, this is gonna be one of those. Like, well, I, I did one, I did one yesterday, which I haven't posted yet, was um Scandalous, which I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember. Mm-hmm. And it's such a dreadful musical and was produced by um, Betsy DeVos and uh, there's so many things wrong with it as a musical but I love Carolee Carmelo and she's incredible but I was doing it and I was like holding the CD up like this features Carolee Carmelo and other than that there's no other reason to get this which is good information to have if you see it and sure. yeah if you see it in the in your you have the bin and you go oh well it's got Carolee Carmelo in it and that's it that's the only if you better really like her because that's I know. <laughs> Especially as these things like, yeah, people, because they don't print so many. And I actually remember having to, I had to get a really convoluted. I had to get someone who was in America to buy that for me and sent years ago. And they were like, why are you buying this? It's absolutely, it's dreck. I was like, no, I need it. Right. Got to have it for the wall. Need it. Need it for the wall. Uh, Card crashing back into Follies for a second, though. Do you have a favorite song in Follies? Oh, I do. And I will, I can, okay, go ahead. If it's not hard, I can, I can, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I'm still here as like the anthem, isn't it? Like that's the, that's the song that I guess probably has the biggest life outside of the show as well. Um, Mm. And it's... That or Broadway, baby. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, And it it takes the boxes and it kind of, it's a, you can do it in a cabaret unless you're Elaine Stritch and she tells you you can't, you have to be over 80 to do it. Um, but that, and then I, then too many mornings actually. And in going back to what I said before, like that was a song I always kind of like never really ingested. But yeah, I, that's something. That's a song that has completely like 
grown on me to the point where I think it's possibly like the highlight of the show for me. It's like, like, um, it just kind of really sums up sums up yeah. the whole musical. And it's That's just mine as like, well. It's a beautiful melody and a beautiful, beautiful harmony, and it just kind of yeah, everything's in there. It really shows. I think it shows off what makes Sondheim special also because it is a gorgeous love song. It's essential. I mean, when you do this as a two act show, it's the end of act one and it feels like the end of act one. I have to say it feels like a, a closing act one number, but, and it has that beautiful metaphor of, you know, too many mornings uh, of, of all that, you know, that, that, that runs throughout. But I, the moment I love the, the thing that he can do that, that so few can also do, and he does it so effortlessly is he also takes time to remind us that this relationship isn't real and that Sally isn't well when right. she gets obsessed about what she should have worn and, and goes on that little tangent while Ben is still like performing the love song. And it's, it's, it's gut wrenching how she's like, you're remind, you're never quite allowed to relax in that love. Yeah, you shouldn't yeah. be. It, it, it's not a fault because it's there are several numbers in the show that are you know follies numbers like rain on the roof and Broadway but like they're the ones they're performing from their days in the theater uh this is not that this is happening right now and while it's gorgeous it's a fantasy and the fantasy is going to come crumbling down on us yeah. in about an hour so don't don't get too settled because Sally's yeah, not yeah. not not well don't forget that Sally isn't well so Dom man and chair where can people find you on Instagram you can find me on my own. My own Instagram is djwoh88, which doesn't really roll off the tongue. But man, in, <laughs> but that is not very fun. But man in the chair is a lot more fun. So it's man dot in dot the dot chair. There Someone we. already had man in the chair, so oh well, ruined it for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, come along and um, let's see if it. Let's, let's see if I'm still here in a year's time. <laughs> <laughs> Too many mornings Waking and pretending I reach for you Thousands of mornings Dreaming of my girl All that time wasted Merely passing through I could have spent so content wasting time with you. Too many mornings wishing that the room might be filled with you. Morning to morning turning into days all the day I thought would never end All the nights With another day to spend All the times I'd look up to see Sally standing at the door Sally moving to the bed my head 
The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at UnknownPenguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. Right, thanks to Damo Hanlon for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Too many mornings Wasted in pretending I reached for you How many mornings Are there still to come? How much time Can we hope that there will be